Jail time. Jail time. Those were the two words that were running through my head over and over again. Okay, let's backtrack a little bit here. So I had this car. It was a 1999 Ford ZX2. A a rocket by any stretch. You ain't kidding. (laughs) My parents convinced me to buy it. I wasn't sure how I felt about that car at first, and then I grew to hate it. And there were a few reasons for that. A, it was this Econo box, sort of... It was. It's basically an Escort, right? The it, ZX2? It was, yeah, it was a sport edition of the Escort. Now, in it, its right, defense... Sport edition of the Escort. I, I once had someone try to tell, sell me the Escort as a European sports car. <laughs> that is no lie. Anyway, not at all. No, no, not so much. Now, okay, so the ZX2 was actually... I think it was mostly Mazda parts, honestly. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, is a vote in its favor. But it... it <laughs> It had some pep. It was a it was a four cylinder uh, Z Tech, which is the equivalent of Honda's V Tech. It's variable cam timing, mm-hmm. um, so it it did eke out more performance than your standard four cylinder, sixteen valves and all that. This thing was one hundred and thirty horsepower and relatively light, um, but really it it was an Econo box that had been a little bit souped up by the manufacturer to have a little bit more punch. That said, the uh, the first gear was too short. The second gear was too long. You know, it, it was just an awkward car to, to launch. <laughs> so um, first gear is really short. So, I mean, you, you'd zip right up, red line it, then throw it in second. We're like, hey, where'd the pool go? Yeah, basically. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> so acceleration, I mean, it, it would do zero to 60 in like seven point ish five six seconds something like that so it wasn't horrible but at the same time it wasn't highly refined you know let me guess you you modded this thing didn't you i modded the living daylights out of this thing yeah uh so yeah i started in on the modifications here and there and and i really enjoyed that process um it was the first car that I, i really worked on uh to, to any real extent, having a long line of, of previous Fords. And maybe that's why I didn't like it as well. I had a long line of previous Fords before <laughs> this. Um, so anyway, I put a cold air intake on that. I put custom exhaust on it. Um, I put uh, higher PSI fuel injectors, uh, a custom ECU uh, engine control unit that was remapped for higher octane and actually had octane switching. Um, so if I was running one octane flip a switch if i was running another octane you talking the difference between 87 and 93 or something else yeah so 80 87 89 92 93 yeah Yeah. um had three settings uh i had some nice tires on there they were i believe v-rated if my memory they could actually go faster and not explode yeah yeah, Yeah. handle handle better and, and all this uh coil over lowering springs so that's you know lowered about an inch just for handling purposes. I, I didn't do one of these slam it to the ground and put 12 inch tires on it. And, <laughs> and then you can't go over speed bumps. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, strut tower bars to, you know, tighten up the, the steering through corners and underdrive pulley that reduced the amount of engine power that was being required for the serpentine belt. And then some mild weight reduction. So, uh, so now we've got more power, lower weight. So much better power to rate weight ratio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I said, it had 130 horsepower at the flywheel when it was stock and with only an intake and underdrive pulley and a governor bypass switch because uh, <laughs> it was governed. I forget where it was governed. I want to say it was governed like right around 100 miles an hour. Anyway, uh, it could do 125. And that was 
relatively stock, you know. Um, but all the work that I'd done to it, I reckon it had a horsepower to weight ratio approaching Honda S two thousand numbers. Oh, that's the little sports car convertible two seater with that motor that would whine to like nine thousand RPM. Yeah, or something. yeah, yeah. And okay. so the 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 power wasn't. Um, you know, in the 9,000 RPM range in this thing, but it, it made more at lower RPMs. And that's when I really started loving the car. Uh, so the day I quote unquote completed my build, as far as I was willing to spend money on oh, it, this is where jail time comes, huh? Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> okay. I decided to take it out for a top speed run being the responsible 20 year old that I was sarcasm alert. I decided to do that on a stretch of open highway. Is that the first time we've had an oxymoron appear on citizens of tech, a responsible 20 year old? (laughs) (laughs) It may, it may not be the first time, but it's probably the most egregious. (laughs) Um, So I will now take the time to quote Bilbo Baggins at the council of Elrond in the fellowship of the ring because hey, nerd time, right? I will now tell the true story, and if some here have heard me tell it otherwise, I ask them to forget it and forgive me, (laughs) because some facts may have been changed in the past to protect the not-so-innocent. Anyhow, this particular stretch of highway is often lightly trafficked, especially midday when these events took place, and this day was particularly vacant. So while I was irresponsible in my choice of location for this, I did at least have the decency to make sure I wasn't endangering other people. Uh... One section of the run is downhill, and I had a bit of a tailwind that day, just for the uh, conditions on the field report. I proceeded to pass the location where the police would run radar normally. In other words, no trap, I'm free. Yeah. Essentially doing 55 to who knows how fast uh, from that point on. I recall downshifting from fifth to third and getting into the throttle, upshift to fourth at around 85 miles an hour, watching the uh, tack climb back towards the 7,000 RPM red line. At this point, I'm not really sure how fast I was going because the speedometer in my ZX2 only went up to 120 miles per hour. And that was long since surpassed. <laughs> the legendary bragging of youth. I picked the speedometer. Yeah. You actually did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> next thing I know, I noticed the Ford Crown Victoria on the on-ramp some distance behind me. And uh, I started decelerating getting ready to take an off-ramp. So you you, you know the location. I was going to get on 93 North and and try to duck out. I know exactly where you were, yeah. And the Crown Vic closed the distance mighty fast. You get on the brakes. He's on the gas. Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed the blue lights flashing in the front grill. Crap. (laughs) Not your grandpa's Crown Vic. No, it was not. Uh, Again, I know I was doing at least 130 miles per hour, and this was a 55-mile-per-hour zone. (laughs) Um, some quick, scared napkin math told me I was doing more than double the speed limit. A few words popped into my head, jail, license, forfeiture, fines, end of life as I know it, among others. So up comes the screaming police officer who was so adamant about my recklessness and stupidity, which he was completely correct about, that I was not even asked for my license and registration or removed from my vehicle for a rather prolonged amount of time. When the initial tirade had subsided, he asked something along the lines of, what do you think you were doing? To which I simply replied, I was greatly exceeding the speed limit. (laughs) So he was actually screaming at you. Yeah, uh, full on. You said that? I was greatly exceeding the speed limit? I was greatly exceeding the speed limit. There was no other, I mean, what what else was I going to say? So you didn't play dumb, you didn't, you just... Yeah, no, up. red-handed, it buddy. Is what it you, is. you yep. nailed me, you know. So he he did. Uh, he took my license registration, came back to yell at me some more, and then it was over. Just over. 
Ah, so not in fact jail time. No, he finished yelling, gave me a final parting warning about if I ever see you again, da 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 da, gave me back my license and registration and walked away. He he just walked away. And I drove away a free man. Okay. No ticket, no court date, not even a written warning. To this day, I do not know why it went why it went down that way. He recognized you were a responsible 20-year-old. Apparently so. Well, at least he was on a, you know, unpopulated stretch of high. I don't know. Uh, so, you know, I think that he did the right thing, though. I mean, I'm glad he did it that way. But he put a fear into me that day that ensured I would never do something that stupid again. I drove that car for nearly four more years and never hit triple digits on a public road again. So, uh, Okay. I, I got to ask you, how, do you know how fast you were actually going? Okay. So in the midst of his yelling, I thought I recalled him saying something about 147 miles per hour. In further discussions over the years, I've kind of doubted that figure and figured maybe he said 137. Either way, ridiculous. But come on, the story's cooler at 147, right? So that brings us to some quick maths in order to accurately recount this event. It would appear that the top speed of my ZX2 at that time, with a 0.795 to 1 fifth gear ratio and 16-inch wheels at 6,700 RPM, was indeed 147 miles per hour. So apparently he wasn't fabricating numbers and neither was I in recounting my story over the years. So you actually hit 6,700 RPM in fifth gear? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Down there with a tailwind, but still. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, and and the thing is, um, the stretch of road was going to end in about a mile and a half, I think. So. And there's the whole braking thing. Yeah. There's yeah. that slowing down, which I, I did have some some better brakes on there, but nothing that was going to slow me down from 150 <laughs> in a you know reasonable time period. Um. So, yeah, I feel a little vindicated because I sat down and did the math for recounting this and and it came out that way. As an aside, I kind of feel embarrassed about my foolish disregard for safety. But again, the lesson was learned that day. Never again. You feel foolish, but you also rocked. So that was, In you a know, way, it also is one of your most awesome memories ever. It really, really is. And and would have been a terrible, terrible memory if he decided to have, you know, charges brought against me and all that. But uh, that's the way it went. So if you enjoyed this story, you're probably a bit of a gearhead or maybe a math nerd. Either way, you're a citizen of tech. And today is the 29th glorious day of July 2015. And for you today, we have a couple of newsy bits, a look over our shoulder at the Egyptian pyramids, an addition to the death watch, a today I learned a double shot, why carbon dating is failing and using our bodies for electrical energy creation. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks. And of course, Eric, 147 mile per hour Sutfin is at Zutfin. So let us jump right in with a quirky footnote in the world of gaming. Doom, to be specific, one of my very first ever first person shooters. I think I went from Wolfenstein 3D and then into Doom, which was so much better in so many ways. Mm. Uh, real 3D uh, world and all that stuff. And, um, um, this article comes from Ars Technica. Yeah. Doomception. How modders got Doom to run inside of Doom. <laughs> so Doom was open sourced way back in the 90s. Right. Uh, and then folks just went kind of crazy porting it to all sorts of things. I was reading in the article, they were talking about watches mm -hmm. and just uh, all sorts of platforms that you can run open sourced Doom from. And now you can run Doom inside of Doom. Right. So 
Okay, if we're being technically accurate, this is actually Doom running inside of GZ Doom, which is a heavily modified Doom source port that was first released in 2005 to bring a slew of modern gaming features to the 1993 original. The author also warns that the in-game versions of Doom and Wolfenstein 3D available in the mod are only semi-complete. Still, the sheer amount of near-pointless effort and dedication needed to get GZ Doom to run (laughs) what is essentially... A version of itself within itself is impressive and kind of frightening. <laughs> um, I just love the idea of this. And there were some screenshots in the article that, that the quote you just read from uh, that shows you in the game with a, like an arcade console in front of you of Doom yep. playing and it's actual Doom inside of Doom. It's just it's it's bonkers and i guess so i'm I'm not a game programmer but there's a some special stuff that made this happen called action code script i don't know if you've heard of this i'm familiar with the term but yeah i'm i'm not a programmer so i'm not intimately uh familiar with it but so okay here's what i'm reading about this acs action code script was designed to allow modders to re uh, to create more interactive environments through simple byte codes that did things like open doors play sounds or move items and characters around in response to player actions and that bytecode-based language in that game was later extended in the ZDoom port, a source port, to allow for high-level programming features like named scripts, functions, arrays, and entire libraries. And those additions made their way into the later GZDoom as well and has led us to a capability of being able to do Doom inside of Doom. So, yeah, it translates information relevant to your character in the game to these variables and functions and arrays that control events inside the doom inside the doom inside the doom i just keep chuckling because it's um okay so the the other piece of this for me that's fascinating is um it must be something about technical people that we get obsessed Mm. about stuff oh yeah i mean do you you know what i mean there's just certain things that just kind of grab a hold like i I, okay so here's here's a for example shopping for stuff whatever Mm. it is i don't just buy something oh no it's a painstaking process i read reviews and i don't just read reviews i actually distill the most enthusiastic with the crappiest reviews and sprinkle in a few in the middle i tend to throw out the worst and uh and and throw out the most uh, excited and then go for the ones in the middle people who had you know gave it a four star instead of a five star review because it meant they actually thought about it yep and uh, have some useful input you know that's how i just so i obsess and i go through all these reading of reviews and comparing different competitive products and uh you're really thinking carefully about you know what well if if i spent the extra money for this product that has this whatever feature then i i think i'd be a happier person <laughs> and you know finally we'll we'll ante up and spend the money on it case in point this isn't in our plan for the show, but I did buy a Kindle Voyage, yeah, which is the their high end e reader. You pay extra eighty bucks for it, and it isn't that much different from the Paperwhite for your extra eighty bucks. Sure, but we'll talk about that another day. But I mean, this was weeks of reading, watching YouTube video reviews, and so on before I actually bought the thing. <laughs> well, these guys that did this Doom inside of Doom have to have a similar level of insane obsession. Yeah, it's it's an obsession to uh, why would we do that? Well, because we can. Yeah, you know, (laughs) because we can. Okay, so here's another because we can. Another group of obsessed, insane people are audiophiles. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so I I I grew up with uh with my dad being a bit of an audiophile. I wouldn't say he was way over the top because he always balanced practicality with um with what it was worth spending money for. Mm. But in the audiophile realm, you don't have to be practical at all. No. 
you can spend a bonkers amount of money for something that is a very incremental improvement. And cables are a classic example of that. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you you can have uh, situations where the next incremental step better is multiple thousands of dollars for, you know, the next improvement in your overall system. But, you know, cables don't run quite that level, but. Oh, I suggest that they do. <laughs> so we, Ars Technica, again, they tore apart a $340 audiophile Ethernet cable. What? <laughs> and then take a peek inside to see why the heck is this thing worth $340? Wait, 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 wait. Audiophile Ethernet cable. Uh-huh. That's right. That's right. You got it. But what, what's the question? Why are you furrowing your brow? <laughs> <laughs> but but digital ones and zeros. So, okay. So 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 let's address that initially cuz cuz that is a thing. Um there is a contingent in the audiophile world that will say, let's say you're pulling music off of a NAS network attached storage device in your house. Okay. You want a fancy ethernet cable to do that because yes, they'll acknowledge it's ones and zeros, but the ethernet cable itself, which is made of metal could pull in extraneous uh, uh, sounds and electromagnetic interference and whatever, and could possibly impact the sound in some audible way, introduce something extra into the signal. That will be their, their argument to which I call shenanigans. Right. So but- <laughs> audiophiles that would claim this know nothing about how computers work. I, there are people that are very passionate about this. There's actually two articles that we'll link to in the show notes here uh, on Ars, Ars Technica. And they talk about interviewing some of the people who are really believers mm. in these special grade Ethernet cables and why. I read their logic and it didn't I, – I wasn't biting. And let, <laughs> let me, let's just talk about this for a minute because yeah. you're right. First of all, digital, ones and zeros. Second of all – Ethernet cables. Well, what the heck is an Ethernet cable? It's manufactured to a very specific standard, right? Right. So if you're in the networking world, you've got way back in the day, a Cat 3 cable was like entry level for 10, 10 base T. Yep. Uh, then you – and that well, – if you were to, to, to tear that apart and look at it, you'd see that there weren't very many twists in the cables that make up the twisted pair. Right. Okay. Moving into Cat 5 – there were now more twists in the cable. Cat 5E, even more twists. And then you get into Cat 6, Cat 6 augmented, Cat 6A. Uh, and Cat 7, you have different levels of grades of twists uh, in each of those pairs. And then when you get into Cat 7, you might even introduce shielding. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that to reduce crosstalk. All of that to reduce the impact of the environment on any data going across that cable. But this is Ethernet. Right. Even if you have... Uh, some kind of an error introduced, Ethernet will detect the error and have it resent. And and the 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 um the data if if that is a bad frame that arrives, it's just going to get discarded, right? And then right, assuming TCP transmission happened to be riding on top of that Ethernet, that frame is or that uh, packet is going to get resent and a new Ethernet frame made, and off we go. There's the data; it's been replaced. Did you hear anything different in your audio in the ones and zeros? Well, no, you no, didn't. You didn't. There's <laughs> buffering and so on. You never would have even known that a packet was lost and retransmitted along the way. Right. So you go to Best Buy and uh, oh, yeah. get cables that are expensive by my judgment. You can buy a box of cable and make them yourself and probably have them do just fine. Well, that's This is kind of in the same vein as the gold-plated HDMI cables, right? Like... you're supposed to get a better picture out of it and blah, 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 blah. But it's a digital format. 
So how could it possibly right. be better? Either the, either the signal is getting there or it's not. It's not. Yep. So uh, uh, so anyway, what's in a three hundred and forty dollar audio file Ethernet cable? Unicorn tears and uh, uh, <laughs> centaur I mean, fur. I, <laughs> no, that's the joke. There's nothing magical about this. Okay, real, okay. I mean, there's, there's some nominal magic in the cable, but, so, but not much. I it, mean, it's they they they. So our technician actually took a, a razor blade to this cable and okay. tore it down element yep. by element to see what's in it. So there's a couple of uh, high quality uh, braided foil shielded um, uh, elements here. Uh, that's significant. That's important, I guess. Um, the plugs are uh, the plugs themselves are high quality and they give a particular model I'd never heard of, but they're Telegartner MFP8s, which cost about nine euros a piece, depending on where you get them. Okay. Um, those plugs mean nothing to me. To me, I, it's like, well, if they're cat six certified or the cat five certified, I know what certification level they meet. Then good enough. Can I crimp them? Right. Yeah. You know, there you go. <laughs> and uh, and so they, they say, this looks like a cable that conforms to the cat seven spec. And if you were so inclined, you could probably use it for 10 gig Ethernet. Makes sense to me that, uh, that yeah, you can use cat so, six I mean, for 10 gig. They're not so. junk being relabeled as, as good, but... No, I mean, no, they're not junk. I mean, and they're even slightly exotic. I mean, they, they get down to the final step here. When they stripped everything down and got to the actual twisted pair of copper wires, we were pleased to see that they were indeed coated in silver, as the manufacturer's page describes. Hmm. And, of course, at the end of the article, they're like, we don't know if that matters, but it was it was as they described. Yeah, sure. So uh, it, sounds, uh, it sounds like a status symbol more than... It sounds like I don't know what to do with my money. I'm really confused. I have so much of it. Uh, what What could I? I know. I'll build this ridiculous uh, stereo system, audio file quality, and buy the best of everything. What's the best? Probably the most expensive. It, the other piece of this that, that, that the cable, I mean, your media that you're transmitting data across isn't your only variable here. There's there's only so far that the motherboard of the device that's actually receiving the signal is going to be. You're not going to have gold circuits on your your motherboard. Oh. You're not going to have silver circuits on your motherboard. You're, you're going to have you know mass produced. Well, I was chuckling too because the, the, where the manufacturer of this cable was talking about streaming music off of a NAS and network attached storage. How much you want to bet that the average person who doesn't know what they're doing is streaming a compressed MP3? No. That has definitely got audio artifacts in it. If you're an audiophile, you're not. Well, I would hope so, but I but I was just chuckling, wondering, so is someone who's got their music collection on a NAS, are they just that ignorant that they'd be listening to compressed MP3s yet, yeah. across their $340 and cable? Yet, yeah, concerned enough to buy $340 <laughs> Ethernet cables. I don't know. Oh, man. That's, well, hey, we got a death watch, don't we? Yeah, and this one's sort of a long time coming, um, but... New new developments here on on LifeLock. Uh, LifeLock. If you're if you're not familiar with it, they're the people that claim they can prevent identity theft. Uh, but it seems they're preying on your insecurity as opposed to offering any useful service. So, okay, I remember these guys coming on with like infomercials or at least some kind of a commercial where they would say, you know, we're LifeLock, we prevent identity theft, I'm the CEO, and here's my social security number. That's how confident I am in the LifeLock service, that whole thing. And then his identity got stolen a dozen times. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the part they didn't tell you about, apparently. Um, so, yeah, his uh, his own product didn't help him, I guess. But <laughs> so there's a there's a new uh, suit going on here. 
Uh, the agency in a federal suit filed in LifeLock's home state of Arizona accuses the company of failing to notify its customers immediately after their identities were compromised and alleges the company did not implement the same type of identity protection safeguards used by banks. The FTC said LifeLock promised those services to its customers but did not live up to it. So long story short, the FTC, I mean, if they're involved, it's they really believe there's consumer harm being done. LifeLock's a scam. Yeah, because it takes a lot to get the FTC involved in in something, you know. Uh, <sighs> yeah, it's uh, it's pretty much at this point a done deal that LifeLock is, you know, maybe they had a had a viable service back, you know, a decade and a half ago or whenever they started. I forget at this point, but it's been a long time. But I think that things have come so far in in the realm of identity theft that maybe they just didn't keep up, but just kept selling the products and services as if they had come so far in the realm of identity theft, meaning the identity thieves have gotten so much better at it. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. Unfortunately. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, anyhow, so today I learned, what did you learn today? Today I learned that due to the lack of human activity, Several rare and endangered species have returned to the Chernobyl exclusion zone, including lynx, wolves, wild boar, and even brown bears. Oh, so there's promise for Cerberus to exist in real life then because of the radioactivity? We can only hope. (laughs) I want a Hydra, too. Come on. (laughs) That would be awesome. Hey, you know what? Today I learned something as well. No way. What'd you learn? I learned that there are three different kinds of tears. There are basal tears. Basal tears are what's normally there keeping your eye moist. And then there are reflex tears. Reflex tears are a reaction to the environment, like you're chopping an onion and it releases a gas into the air and it makes your eyes uncomfortable and you cry. Or you got dirt in your eye, something like that. Sure. And then there are psychic tears. Psychic tears are the ones that well up when you are emotional. You're crying because you're sad or you know whatever, a, a reaction to an emotion. There's uh, psychic tears. So basal, uh, reflex, and then psychic tears you know the real question here what's the real question can the psychic tears get me the winning lottery numbers <laughs> again of course <laughs> mm. okay so let's glance over our shoulder at the past here and this was an interesting one it's actually kind of old news but it was new to me so i figured we'd throw it in here it's a new theory for how the great pyramids were constructed now I don't know if you've seen some of the conspiracy theories about people, you know, they think that, um, you know, alien technology was involved. No. And- well, I'll, I'll tell you what I have seen. This is kind of kind of my memory of uh, I know it was a documentary or something that I saw. But but essentially it was a lot of people and then using some kind of uh, logs or something to move stones, very heavy stones into position. But they were just using basic physics and a lot of manpower to to make it happen. And then for uh, elevation, some kind of a crane system, I believe. I don't, it wasn't, whatever, it, it looked very plausible, whatever yeah, it I was. Mean, there are a slew of theories out there. Um, I guess from, the bottom line is we don't actually know. We don't, even to this day. And uh, this guy, uh, his name is Chris Massey. He's from uh, Derby, Derbyshire in England. Um, he came up with this theory. And after, well, he wrote a book about it. Based on the information that he, you know, pulled together from historical, from site visits and uh, and all this. And there's a, actually a video on YouTube. I'll, we'll link it in the notes. It's about a 20-minute video that explains his theory. And it seems entirely plausible, uh, it, but for a few, a few minor facts. Um, 
So basically, if you look at the the major uh, build sites around the Great Pyramids, there seems to be a, a canal and a causeway between the harbor, the, the neighboring harbor, and the, the actual building site. And it was long thought that, okay, well, this was used you know, as a walkway for ceremonial purposes, you know, it's a pyramid, it's used for burial and okay. Not tied to construction necessarily just right. Yeah. Um, now the interesting bits about this are, uh, our buddy Herodotus shows up again. We, we talked about two things that he mentioned in the last show and apparently Herodotus is an honorary citizen of tech, uh, in 450 BC, he was told, uh, by his guide when he was actually in uh, Egypt, that it took 10 years to build the causeway. Um, I, apparently they had records because, I mean, this took place, you know, 2000 years before Herodotus was even there. But um, the other interesting thing is the level of uh, accuracy and precision that the causeway and, and, and canal seem to have been made with. It suggested far more attention to detail than just this is a walkway. Um, which I guess in the grand scheme of things, when you're talking about the great pyramids, maybe it was because it was for the pharaohs and, and all this. But um, when he when he read that, that set off his theory. And basically, the theory suggests that water would have been used to get the giant stone, you know, multi-ton stone blocks from the quarries to the base of the pyramid itself. They, they would have floated these things on, some, on a raft or something them, like that. And uh, used the water as a leveling system as well so that the, the, the cubes could be made exactly right. So, like a canal system with locks where you're actually floating, um, you know, you can go up or down yep. to try to get across when uh, ground's not level. So using animal skins and, you know, inflated animal skins to float these things. And he did all the math about the buoyancy of limestone, which is the stone that was used um, and how prevalent, you know, animal skins were used as, as water transport devices and, and all this. And so the idea is the the canal would be used to float the stones to the base of of the pyramid. And then they would actually make a water tube, uh, system, you know, made out of stone, but it's watertight. And it had a series of locks where you would lock out, get them in. And then when you opened the second lock, the only place for these to go was uphill up the, up the water. Sure. Okay. And he's built, you know, demonstration devices that, that show this. And, he contends that then at the top of the pyramid would have been, you know, a, a, a water system at the top so that they could float these into place as well. So water would be water in the flotation. Would you handle most of the energy required to, to get these stones roughly into place? And then human beings could have positioned them correct from there. Yep. But Using, I would have to think there'd be evidence of such a system left behind because you're talking about massive structures, watertight structures. So here's here's where uh, there is a bit of evidence that actually shows in the in the right lighting situations, you can actually see deviation in the normal shadowing of uh, that's that's applied to the side of the pyramid in the in just the right light, and you actually see what appears to be in the center of one of the sides of the pyramid where the, the channel that they would have built might have been. 
Now, the gotcha on this is there is very little actual evidence in hieroglyphic and, you know, historical accounts about this sort of thing. But if you look at it from a manpower and um, logistical standpoint, this makes a lot of sense. <laughs> if they didn't do this, they should have. But <laughs> because those those those, uh, you know, stereotypical, OK, here's the ramp and people are using these big logs to roll these giant stones up and it takes 50 men per brick and whatever. The amount of earth material that would have been required to get the stones to the the pinnacle was hundreds of thousands of cubic meters worth of material. And then it would have had to have all been pulled away and relocated. And, you know, just that aspect of it itself was a huge – would have been a massive undertaking. So – there are bits that kind of make sense and bits that sort of don't make sense. And, you know, at the end of the day, we still don't really know, but this is one more plausible theory. One of the things I like about this idea is that it speaks to the engineering prowess of the Egyptians to build many of their structures. The, since we're talking about the pyramids, the pyramids, what an incredible achievement to have. Oh yeah. I mean, no, I don't subscribe to the aliens theory. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I do. No, I don't. Um, but the uh, assuming that they they pulled this off with human beings and, and intellect and math and uh, you know leverage and maybe flotation. Now it all it makes sense to me that whatever it took, it wasn't just the designing of the pyramids integral to the creation of the pyramids was a process to put the whole thing together. And so it, it, it adds up to me that maybe they did something really novel like this yeah. to, uh, to make this happen because the, the height seems to be the, the biggest thing to overcome here. How do you get the stones placed so high? Pretty easy. Well, heavy, but pretty easy to put in the base layer. A little bit harder to put in that second level because now you got to go up. It gets exponentially you know, harder. You end up with, with a bunch of ramp systems in place maybe, and it gets complicated and how many people are dying because of mistakes being made. I mean, you you know, some something like this. This water system, I, I like it. I like so, it anyway. Yeah, I mean, take a look at the video if you have if you have twenty minutes uh, to spare. If nothing else, it's a compelling theory, whether it's right or not. You know, if it proves to be right or not. Um, just the amount of thought and and the uh, the number of I's and T's at dots and crosses is mm. is pretty compelling. And we will link to that YouTube video in the show notes. All right, that was our look back at the past. Now, looking into the future, we got a couple of uh, couple of articles to discuss. One, uh, Ars Technica, yet again, I found a piece that really captured my imagination here uh, about our reliance on fossil fuel combustion is ruining carbon dating. Let me start off here with what what is carbon dating. So science uses carbon radiocarbon dating to determine how old something is. So this is useful for dating fairly recent objects in Earth history, things that are thousands of years old, not you know millions of years old. Okay. Um, and so here's here's a little bit more from Wikipedia on how this works. Per the Wikipedia article, the radiocarbon dating method is based on the fact that radiocarbon is constantly being created in the atmosphere by the interaction of cosmic rays with atmospheric nitrogen. The resulting radiocarbon combines with atmospheric oxygen to form radioactive carbon dioxide, which is incorporated into plants by photosynthesis. Animals then acquire carbon-14 by eating the plants. And so therefore – okay, so just in summary – the atmosphere is always creating new carbon-14. 
we are going to, as living things, get carbon-14 into our systems. Plants are going to get it by photosynthesis. Animals are then going to get it by eating those plants. So this is something that, as living things, we we have carbon-14 in our systems. Okay, so when that living thing dies, you or me or whatever it is that used to be alive dies, the carbon-14 it contained at death decays at some predictable rate. It's a radioactive um, isotope. It has a half-life. We know what that half-life is, and therefore we can measure um, the state of decay and use that measurement to determine how long ago these remains were alive. Within you know, a so reasonable can, window. Yeah, within yeah. a reasonable window. It's not super precise, but it's it's precise within, I I would guess, uh, tens of years, generally speaking. Okay. So it's, um, yeah, it's not going to be, it was Tuesday, November 13th. So yeah, but, but you can get it down to, you know, we're talking a range here that this is useful up to about 50,000 years ago. You know, okay. if we, just a little bit more from Wikipedia on how this whole thing works. The, the older a sample is, the less carbon-14 there is to be detected because the half-life of carbon-14, the period of time after which a uh, after which half of a given sample will have decayed is about... 5,730 years. So the oldest dates that can be reliably measured by radiocarbon dating are around 50,000 years ago. Uh, although special preparation methods occasionally permit the dating of older samples. So that that's radiocarbon dating in a nutshell. So now we're back to the article title here, which is our reliance on fossil fuel combustion is ruining carbon dating. So, okay. Why? What, what is going on here? Um, and what's going on is that we, as a species, we we burn a lot of fossil fuels, right? Mm. Uh, like dinosaur bones, right? <laughs> That's you've heard that joke. Yeah. We're burning dinosaur bones. Well, we are indeed, and that is diluting the atmosphere of fresh carbon fourteen. Okay, we burn fossil fuels mm. that goes into the atmosphere. The atmosphere's carbon fourteen, fresh carbon fourteen, is being diluted because we're sending up there carbon fourteen that's already decayed somewhat when we burn things. Ah. Fossil fuels are. I'm going to quote from the article here. Fossil fuels, of course, are very, very old organic matter, so old that they have practically no carbon fourteen left. So when we burn them, we dilute the amount of atmospheric carbon fourteen. In other words, the fresh stuff with the old stuff that's pretty much all decayed, meaning. That that present-day organisms have lower levels of carbon-14 than we might otherwise expect. Uh, in other words, we got a lot of decayed carbon-14 We have a lower alongside parts of the fresh stuff. Right. So because dead organisms also have low levels of carbon-14, the result is that organisms living today, interacting with today's atmosphere, will have about the same levels as dead organisms from long ago. So all of a sudden fresh corpses are looking like they've been around for a long time and wow. they are not fresh. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> so that is impactful to science. And so the article quoted from Dr. Heather Graven of the Imperial college in London. And I've, I, I actually looked her up online and found her bio page from the Imperial college website. If you're interested in some of her other work, uh, but they quote her ultimately Graven writes, this means that we're going to need to reassess our dating methods, no matter how successful our environmental policies are. In other words, by environmental policies, I mean, globally, if we as a species stop burning fossil fuels, dinosaur bones and, st- and come up with other ways to generate our electricity, we still have a problem. Mm. Uh, improving precision in radiocarbon dating itself to enable detection of even the tiniest differences in levels of decay is one step we could take 
to try to you know improve in this process. Greater precision is unlikely to fill the gap by itself, though, meaning that many scientists will need to develop alternative measurement techniques just to keep doing what they're currently doing. And the impacts of this, as Graven writes, will be far-reaching. Yeah, that's that's really kind of impactful because, you know, for for older specimens, there are other radioactive elements that that we date by, but we know the half lives for them, and they're they're more accurate for longer time frames. But this really affects our ability to granularly look at more recent items and determine the effective age. So I have a relative who's involved in the field of archaeology. Mm. Um, It immediately popped into my mind that uh, their work would be impacted by something like this, potentially, if if they're trying to date a, a dig site to a certain era. And, but just science in general, trying to discover, you know, is it digging down through the layers of the earth and something's there? How old is this thing? Whatever right. it is they discover, cross-referencing what strata it's found at and radiocarbon dating and sort of piecing everything together. If we don't know, it confuses how the how our human timeline gets assembled mm. and put together. So it's it'd be it's it's an interesting story to follow, and it's also. From Dr. Graven's perspective, she's suggesting that it's really too late. We're kind of screwed on So we this. just need to find a new way of doing it. We're, we're, it looks like we're going to have to because of this. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, it's funny that if you think about burning coal, burning oil and so on, we know there's a limited amount of it in the earth. And, you know, we've already reached peak oil production, we think, and so on. And there's only so much of it anyway. We already know we're going to have to do something else, but... It, it's captivating the impact that we as people have had on the world, not necessarily saying it's been all bad. It's just kind of when you look at just burning stuff to make energy, it's it's fostered an incredible amount of advances mm. in humanity and also kind of like it's kind of like we drove a racing car through a China shop. We did a lot of damage on the way through. Well, it's, it's the, you know, equal and opposite reaction thing. There's, there's, you know, benefits from it and there's a a piper that has to be paid eventually as well. So yeah, it's uh, anyway, a little bit of a sideline here. Yeah. Um, I talked to some solar energy people on Monday. Oh, right. Yes. So just just a, just a quick little aside for for those of you listening to this that might be interested in that I there's a company in the state of New Hampshire up here in the northeast corner of the U.S. Uh, that uh, called Granite State Solar. There's other competitors in the U.S. There's Solar City and a number of other suppliers that uh, that can put solar panels on your roof, connect it to your existing electrical system, and power your house. Uh, sort of indirectly. I mean, really what it does is you get power from the street, but your solar panels on the roof are actually feeding into the grid, and then a meter tracks that. And at the end of the day, you net out with, if you put enough panels on your roof, as supplying your own electricity. Um, you're just not supplying it through a battery system or something where you'd have to store it so you have even power um, uh, uh, distribution. You're, you're you're essentially pumping energy back into the grid and getting credited for it. Effectively, yeah, that's okay. how it how yep. it goes. Now, there's a couple of ways you can that the, the companies do this. One of them, uh, which I think is the Solar City approach, which I, if I remember correctly, is tied back to some of the people who are with Google. Mm. Uh, Solar City will put the panels up on your house for free, but you don't actually own them. Um, and you get a tax benefit out of it, or you get some kind of a financial benefit out of it. But 
you don't get a tax benefit. Solar City gets the tax benefit out of it. You, you, you get free them, energy, right? Something along or something. Those yeah. yeah, it's like a lease arrangement. It's it's complicated. Um, but Solar City's the one who wins in that deal. I don't want to pick on Solar City because maybe they'll sell you right out solar panels. Too. I don't actually know. I haven't talked to them. But uh, this is you know just a little bit of homework that I've done. The project that I'm looking at, they'll uh, actually put panels on the roof and generate enough electricity, pump back into the grid. It would cost me effectively net out to zero for my cost to generate electricity. On a month-by-month basis. And there's enough panels, uh, there's enough efficiency in, in the PV, photovoltaic panels these days, to make that doable. I would. They, he just kind of guesstimated he'd have to put 24 panels on my roof to meet the need, each panel being about 270 watts. And that would about meet my home's daily generation. Um, up here in the Northeast U.S., we're so high up on the surface of the earth that we just don't have super long days like you do in other parts of the earth. So there's only so many hours of peak energy production you're going to get out of the sun. Yep. Uh, so the number of panels takes that into account. There's only so many hours per day you're actually producing electricity you know, and so on. So you throw a few extra panels at it to generate more per, per day, basically. And uh, and then the cost of those panels and the installation, 30% of that, in the U.S. at least, is able to be a tax rebate where it, it comes off of your bottom line tax bill. It's not a deduction you take, which has less of an impact on your tax. It's actually a, a bottom line tax uh, credit oh, wow. that you get back. So that, 30% of the cost. It's so actually if, pretty compelling. If it was a $20,000 installation, 6000 of that could be a tax credit. So you are effectively taxed on six thousand less dollars of your income. You're effectively taxed on thirty. Well, it depends on your tax rate, what right. your tax rate sure. is. But I mean, if my tax bill at the end of the year was uh, thirty thousand dollars, you could subtract six thousand dollars right off of that bottom line tax bill. Oh, okay. I, I yeah. got you. Yep. Yeah, okay. yeah that's wow. what I'm saying. So it, it, it's actually a very, very yeah, that's powerful. very compelling for me. Um, my, because I'm self-employed, my tax rate is about 30%. That's what I send off to the federal government. Yep. Uh, and so if I, so for me, it would come out that I'm paying for the solar array pre with pre-tax dollars is, is kind of roughly how it would work out sure. because of where my tax rate happens to be. So, uh, you know, long story short, I didn't want to dwell on it too, too long, but just to make the point that as far as alternative energy sources go and not burning dinosaur bones so much, solar panels seem to be viable. Um, that tax credit I was just talking about is available in the U.S. through the 2016 tax year. And from there, I think it'll depend a lot on who gets elected president, whether mm. it's whether it's renewed or not. And, uh, you know, we'll see where it goes from there. But uh, it's pretty attractive um, to me. I'm. I don't know that I'm going to do it or not. I, I haven't even got a proposal from them yet. But you know, we'll see. We'll see. It's still a cash outlay for sure. But you know, there's a. You can do another return on investment calculation. It's not just the tax back. It's also now that I'm not paying an electric bill, which would be roughly the case. How many years does it take to pay off? It's right. probably nine or ten years. Yeah. The system's paid for itself. That's that's the number I usually see. Plus, there's a boost in the value of your home, at least anecdotally. Uh, people seem to be willing to pay more if you got solar panels on the roof. So Sure. So it seems like, I don't know, we'll see, maybe. Yeah, it's always been a, an interesting uh, option that I've wanted to explore a little further. And it's good to hear the information that you found out. Well, one more story for the day. Your body the battery. Your body the battery. It's a battery topic that I'm talking about. How weird is that? That never happens on this show. Never, ever. All right. So, yeah, powering gadgets from human biofuel. So. Wait a minute. 
Uh, not biomass. Okay, okay. Biofuel. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Choose your words carefully, right? Uh, so, this is all about using our bodies as a source of power. And that's tempting for things like personal personal wearables, hearing aids, pacemakers, etc. But it's not easy. Uh, so, this article... Uh, that that we turned up here again. Ars Technica is the source Love of the you, day Ars here. Technica. Thank you, Ars Technica. Um, here are a few ways that we might be able to to do this. There's voltage in our ears, which is a fun fact that I did not actually realize today prior to this. Yeah, today I learned there is <laughs> voltage in our ears. The ears of mammals contain tiny electric voltage called the endocochlear potential (EP). Uh, not, not the, the record kind of EP found inside the cochlea, a spiral shaped cavity in the inner ear. The EP aids hearing by converting pressure waves into electrical impulses. It's vanishingly weak, about a 10th of a volt, but it's still strong enough in theory to power hearing aids and other oral implants. Someone has developed an energy harvester chip about the size of a fingernail, which was designed to extract electrical energy directly from the EP. They tested the chip in a guinea pig, implanting it into the animal's inner ear where it generated enough electricity to power a radio transmitter. The minute electrical power produced by the chip, about a nanowatt, which is a billionth of a watt, is still about a million times too low to power an electronic implant at this point. You said bionic guinea pig. Bionic <laughs> guinea pig. Okay, I know that wasn't the point, but that, okay. So what we're really talking about here is our bodies have potential sources of electricity. Well, I mean, your body and runs there's, off of there's electricity. There's actual charge in your ear. Yeah. The uh, cochlear, endocochlear uh, potential, a yeah. tenth of a volt. And they figured out a way to harvest a, a teeny tiny bit of it. Right. I, I presume pigs. you can't harvest all of it or you wouldn't be able to hear. But What? Um, what? Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, what? Yes. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that your that mammal bodies contain a kinetic uh, conversion to electrical power is is just cool. So what else? There's voltage in your butt. <laughs> what well, do you mean? <laughs> if you would get off of it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> in the past few years, researchers have started to exploit a unique property of some materials known as piezoelectricity to generate electricity from human movement. Uh, piezoelectric materials spontaneously generate electric charge when exposed to stress, but their next use could be in energy generating fabrics. So one of the most advanced, uh, of these test implementations was developed in 2013 by a Chinese U S research team that invented an elastomer based piezoelectric fabric able to generate electricity using only the kinetic energy of human movement, locomotion. When a piece of this fabric was worn as a shoe insole by a volunteer, walking generated enough electricity to illuminate 30 LEDs. Hmm. What's more, when the same fabric was applied onto a shirt that was then artificially moved, it charged a lithium-ion battery in a matter of hours. So, uh, you know I hike. The first, that, and that is the first application that popped in my head. Piezoelectric fabric uh, in my shoes or on my shirt or something like that, that it could be used to charge electronics out in the outdoors. That would be amazing. Get your little alligator clips and hook your pants to your phone. Well, I'd have to think it's lighter than using a brick because what I usually do when I go into the wilderness overnight is I have a, a brick with me. Yep. Uh, that's like a 20,000 milliamp brick. So I get four, five, six charges out of it for a phone and I can go multi-days and be 
as connected as the cell service out in the wilderness, which is usually terrible, will will give me. Mm. But I've got GPS navigation. Uh, I can take pictures and all that stuff. You've and got presumably a signal. And- yeah, I got right, right compass. Um, I can stay connected to the outside world when I can get a signal. Yep. Uh, and so having that's my all in one device when I'm out there. I don't have a separate GPS. I don't carry a separate camera. Um, I do have a regular compass, just a practical magnetic compass, of course. But sure. Being able to know that all I got to do is walk and I got a full charge. It just seems like the most natural thing in the world. And it would save weight. Those bricks are heavy. Uh, throwing that in my pack and anything you can do to save a certain amount of weight when you're hiking is, yeah. a, is a big deal. I mean, what does that weigh a couple pounds? I don't think it weighs that much. Half um, a pound? It's, yeah, it's it's many ounces, well, I mean, maybe a pound. Even, I don't know. Even half it's, a pound to a pound is a big deal when you're doing those long hikes, right? It, it, it definitely. Oh, yeah. You consider each and everything you put in your bag. I mean, right. it's, it's, a, it's a rookie hiking mistake is to throw, I'll need all the stuff, you know, and you throw in, you got this 40-pound pack you're lugging through the wilderness that you wish you didn't have because you don't use 20 pounds worth of that stuff. I'm going to throw two gallons of water in there. And- so you learn to peel back to the bare minimum only the stuff you're going to use and the stuff that you do use you want it to be as light as and packable as possible yeah uh, so that's that's a big it's a big thing yeah. ultra light backpacking is a is, is a deal and so i see an immediate use case for the voltage in my butt to power my <laughs> to power the stuff i'm lugging with me the well, phone I, mean, I got with me you know and then you, you think about uh the bicycle is still the number one mode of transportation in the world. And so you're doing a lot of leg movement when you're riding a bicycle. So people that commute via bicycle could be generating electricity just by wearing fabric, just by that's wearing a cool. certain fabric. Yeah. And it's not even fabric. That's got to flap around a lot. They were just talking about, you know, a piezoelectric fabric in the sole of your shoe. Right. That's, that's really cool. That's not you know, moving that's that cool much. Stuff. It's just that little bit of kinetic motion. Yeah. So there's voltage in our ears. There's voltage in our butts. <laughs> there is voltage in your blood as well. Um, well yeah. Okay. So I, I remember this now. I was reading through the article. There's actually chemical energy in our bodily fluids. Right. Um, and blood is, is one of those. Very rich. Uh, and then sweat and tears, the same thing. Sweat has got a compound called lactate. That can be used to generate electricity. Then your tears. Uh, this is actually where today I learned. Um your tears have uh, um, a chemicals in them, basal tears containing glucose, lactate, and, as- and ascorbate, mm. which can be turned to electricity as well. So the theory is, imagine a contact lens powered by your tears, and in that contact lens, you can display information. So it would be like like augmented reality. It's, it's Google Glass inside your eye. Without the stupid external glass thing or the hollow lens from Microsoft, which is this massive, it's not quite a helmet, it's more like a heavy headband. Visor, yeah. Oh, imagine the contact lens and you don't have to have worry about batteries. You just pop the sucker in and there's a display on there like the Terminator. Powered by your tears. So basically what we're saying here is that our gadgets could be powered by blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah, we're totally saying that. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's, (laughs) That's, you know, as long as that's what we're saying. That's what we're saying. So that brings us to the end of the future section and to the end of another edition of Citizens of Tech. Thank you for listening very much to the show this week. And please tell your friends about the show. I mean, uh, most of you that listen are maybe Packet Pushers fans, right? And that's how you heard about this show. Well, tell your friends that maybe aren't network nerds that uh, Citizens of Tech would be a fun show for them to listen to. You can tweet at Citizens of Tech to let us know stuff, anything you want to tell us. And if you want to hear more of these shows, head on up to PacketPushers.net, where you can find this and several other great tech-related podcasts, including the Packet Pushers weekly show about data networking and Data Knots, our brand new show about enterprise ideas. 
IT. From a practitioner's point of view, I record that with my friend Chris Wall. And so we bid you a fond farewell and encourage you to show restraint, testing your fully armed and operational battle stations on planetary populations. Because think of the children. Think of the children.